If you're looking for a way to help birds or take your support to the next level, this May, I would love for you to join the Birds Canada Birdathon. It's easy to participate in and helps raise thousands of dollars for bird conservation. Learn more at birdscanada.org slash birdathon. Now let's get to the episode. You're listening to The Warblers, a Birds Canada podcast minisode. Hola Warblers, welcome to another Minnesota. The Marine Birds You Did Not Know You Loved episode dipped our toes into the seabird ocean. Dr. Sarah Gatowski took us on a journey from her adventure tourism beginnings to the challenges albatrosses and many other seabird species face in our world. Her captivating stories brought us to remote islands we might never visit to learn about what we can do every day to protect seabirds. She returns on today's Minnesota to share the recently discovered migratory journey of North America's Sabine skull, a stunning seabird that nests on the Arctic tundra, splashing to catch insects, dashing on mudflats like a plover, Andra would love this, or spinning like a firelope on shallow water. This episode is incredibly relevant, not only because you get to discover a stunning gull and a bird you might not know about, but Sabine skull. Migration reminds us of the reliance many species have on key oceanic areas like the Juan de Fuca Strait on the west coast between the US and Canada. One of many bird and mammal species that rely on these productive waters. The high shipping traffic and lack of environmental protection on the Canadian side of the strait is just a catastrophe waiting to happen. Proof of this is the cargo ship fire that occurred in late October this year on this critical habitat. According to the Globe and Mail, the Canadian Coast Guard now says that more than 100 shipping containers, at least two of them carrying hazardous chemicals, fell off a cargo ship that later caught fire, prompting environmental concerns that research like Sarah's warns us about. We'll be right back. The Warblers is supported by Feather Friendly, Birds can't see glass and millions die each year because of window collisions. You can save dozens of birds by treating your windows with Feather Friendly's do-it-yourself kit or their commercial solution for large projects. The markers are easy to apply and they work. You can also double your impact by using the code BIRDSCANADA and Feather Friendly will make a donation to support bird conservation. Keep birds singing, treat your windows with Feather Friendly. Visit featherfriendly.com. Sarah, could you tell us about uh, your most recent hot off the press research uh, where you've investigated the migratory journey of high Arctic nesting sabins gulls? I would love to. I'm I'm really excited about this work and uh, happy to share that it'll be published in the journal Animal Migration as part of a special collection on Arctic migrants in a changing world. And that should be available this fall. Uh, so this is some recent work that I've been doing in collaboration with um, Mark Mallory at Acadia University and uh, two other collaborators, Mark Mafti and Shanti Davis. And uh, we've used some 
biologging devices to track salmon skulls from a high Arctic colony in the Canadian Arctic to their overwintering grounds in the Southern Hemisphere. So they undertake some a really incredible annual migration. Okay, so first things first, uh, what do these birds look like? Well, they're really striking birds. They have a dark black hood that then they have a red ring around their eyes and a yellow tip to their black bill so that the black hood really makes those features pop. And they have a unique pattern on their upper wings where the outer edge is sort of stark black and the inner wing is is bright white and then they have a dark gray mantle. And that sort of sounds like maybe a a normal seabird, but the way that that the patterns, yeah. (laughs) But it's it's this very geometric, blocky, sort of triangular pattern that uh, is is beautiful. Quite distinct. It's very distinct. For our listeners, Google it for a second and see how (laughs) stunning this gull is. See if my description holds up. Yes, (laughs) it makes me wonder. If if I'm a newbie and I see a black-headed girl, how do I not start yelling, Sabin's gold, Sabin's gold over there? Ooh, that's really tough because there are a lot of sort of black hooded gulls, but it's that pattern on the wings that sets them apart from anything else. Gotcha. Yeah. Cool. And where could we find them and, and when? Well, that's tough. Um, in Canada your best chance of actually seeing one might be on a, a pelagic or an offshore boat tour off the west coast of BC in the fall in a small period of time window when they're on their way south on migration. That's when you might so, catch them. Is there like an overlap of a couple of days or a yeah, couple of weeks? Like very brief. No, it definitely a couple of weeks up to a month and a half that they're, they're there in the fall. And could you tell us more about their migration? These birds undertake the longest migration of any gull. They travel 15,000 kilometers between their northern breeding grounds and their wintering grounds that are in the southern hemisphere off the coast of Peru and Chile in the highly productive Humboldt current region. So from our tracking, we found that on the southbound journey, they travel through the Bering Strait along the coast of Alaska, or they take a more sort of inland shortcut that crosses over interior Alaska. And then all the birds stop and stage in a pretty small area off the southern coast of Vancouver Island, mostly in a marine feature called the, the Juan de Fuca Eddy. And that's a feature that churns up lots of productivity. And then they carry on south to the Humboldt Current off Peru. And then on the way back, you know, they spend a few months, four or five months down there in the overwintering grounds. And then they turn around and they head back north and they stage again in that same area off of BC. But then they take a major shortcut overland and they either cross directly north over the Alaskan mountain ranges or they cross east to Hudson Bay, which takes them over some other pretty major mountain ranges as well. So seeing that behavior in our tracking data was really exciting. What did you do when you saw that? Well, we we tracked them with two different device types. We tracked we track them with geolocators, which are, they use um, light levels to sort of roughly estimate positions. And so we first tracked them with those devices and we saw these tracks, but we wondered if it might be due to error in the positional estimates if we were really seeing that behavior or not. But then we tracked a bird using a satellite transmitter, which has much more accurate positions. And 
lo and behold, that bird made the same incredible overland migration. So that's when my mind was really blown. And we said, okay, this is really what they're doing. So yeah, exciting day. Were you watching this bird migrate live over these mountain ranges to Hudson Bay on the on the on the GPS, or did you have to find out about this data later on, as after it logged, for example? I'd say almost live with the satellite oh. transmitter devices. Yeah, that must have been so exciting. Very exciting. I just picture a group of scientists hovering <laughs> around a monitor, like uh, like it's a Super Bowl or something. But just <laughs> that sounds very cool. And so you were kind of cautiously optimistic when you first noticed it. And then when your findings were verified, that that was really exciting. Exactly. That's very cool. Uh, Why is this like such incredible new information? Well, the overland journeys are sort of just interesting, Um, but it's the it was the staging off of the West Coast of British Columbia um, and all along the sort of the California current system that was sort of, it was really important information because what we found is we, we tracked some individual birds in more than one year and all the birds that we tracked used that area in, in every year that they were tracked. And the birds that we tracked in more than one year, they had almost the exact same timing of arrival and the duration that they spent in that area on their staging grounds. And so it makes us think that that's a really critical period for them that they're so fixed in their behavior for how they use that area. And that sort of indicates to us that they they could be vulnerable. You know, they really, they have a high dependency on that region during that particular time period. And, you know, if something were to happen in that region, um, like an oil spill, for example, it's a, it's a really important route for commercial vessels that are going in and out to all the major ports on the West Coast there through the Juan de Fuca Strait. And so... You know, there, there are some potential concerns um, for that area that's really important to lots of different wildlife, but Sabin skulls is just one of the species that's clearly very dependent on that area. Sarah, what's the name of this area? It's the area is, it's the northern end of the California current system, which sort of ends in this big cyclonic eddy called the Juan de Fuca eddy. And that's the sort of how we describe the marine environment that they're using. And then the area between Vancouver Island and the continental mainland is the Salish Sea and the Juan de Fuca Strait. And that area is that really important commercial shipping area. So this suggests why it's so important to understand the Sabine Gold's migration, because we might find critical habitat that could be at risk and we can find a way to protect it. But I'm wondering if you have any hypothesis or theory of why these birds are using or are fixed on this critical area. Well, it's it's a super uber productive region for marine productivity. So those eddies, you know, churn up this cold water that meets the freshwater outputs um, from the from the continent. And there's all this mixing and it's just a really um, hyper productive environment. So they're and it's seasonally productive, too. So there's sort of these bursts of productivity and the timing is just right for them when they're on their migration to hit this spot at just the right time to take advantage of a real burst of food. That's so interesting. So hopefully this new research will lead to some positive conservation action down the line, perhaps. That's the hope. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Because that that region is protected, uh, at least partially protected in U.S. waters. But in Canadian waters, we don't yet have the same protective measures in place. Hmm. Something to gun for. I love it. Mm -hmm. I love it. 
it's great to see when research really, really overlaps with uh, conservation goals and, uh, and can potentially make a big difference. Thank you so much for telling us about them. The Warblers is a podcast of Birds Canada. Our goal is to bring you the information you need to discover, enjoy, and protect birds. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, leave a review, and share this podcast with everyone you know. Birds Canada relies on the support of donors like you. To learn more or to make a donation, visit birdscanada.org. And if you give, please note the podcast in the comment box.